The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of chapters 11 and 12. Chapter 11 opens on a frightful middle-of-the-night factory fire in Zenith, with miles of houses threatened, tousled men running through the cold streets, and policemen guarding a sacred fire line, which nobody is allowed through. Nobody, that is, but the haughty, uniformed, nonchalant doctor, Dr. Martin Aerosmith. His arrival parts the admiring crowd. Martin enters the scene with the flourish of an action hero, rushes to the side of an injured fireman, attends to him brusquely, and declares that he will live. Not even the deeply cynical reporter on the scene is immune to Martin's aura of grandeur, and Martin answers his questions from the last step of the back of the ambulance as it bumps away and flies noisily through the streets of the city. Returning to his room in the hospital, Martin passes the lifeless laboratory, and evading the vision of a gaunt Gottlieb, grunts dismissively about that research stuff, and declares his ambulance-riding adventures real life. Martin is mostly bored by the routine of a hospital intern, with its patients, quote, always changing as to individuals and never changing as a mass of drab pain. Unquote. But the black bag that earns him the respect of policemen, prostitutes, saloon keepers, and hold up men alike gives him his first feeling of power. And the ambulance work, with its thrills of fires and floods and murder, is endlessly stimulating to his pride. In contrast with Martin's own inflated self image, Gottlieb looks like nothing more than an impractical fusser. But, in his quiet moments alone, Martin longs for the lab, and the thrill of uncharted discoveries. So, when even the ambulance becomes routine as bookkeeping, and the pretentious title of The Doctor merely wearing to live up to, he satisfies his guilty scientific lust by scrabbing in the hospital lab. When Dean Silva comes to the hospital on consultations, Martin introduces him to Leora, and Silva asks to take the two of them to dinner. There, Silva tells Leora it is his belief that Martin is destined to be an artist healer, and not a picker of trifles like the laboratory men. He likens the researchers to the men who invented paint and canvas, and the doctors to the artists who create with them. The former ignore consequences and practical uses. The latter make millions of people well and happy. In the warm glow of Silva's affection, Martin and Leora come to view their plan to settle in Wheatsylvania as glory and salvation. Not long after, they pass Max Gottlieb on the streets. Gottlieb is cordial, but his pained posture and the expression in his eyes say, why have you never come back to me? Leora's judgment of Gottlieb is characteristically swift. She declares him a great man, warns Martin that he's the one man she'd leave Martin for if he wanted her, and says she'd black his shoes. And Martin replies, God, so would I. We are then, for the first time, given a glimpse into Max Gottlieb's tragic backstory. Though Gottlieb took a medical degree, 
he was never interested in practicing medicine. He was driven by what he saw as a vital need for quantitative method in the medical sciences. He was a vicious assailant of slackness, lies, pomposity, and well-intentioned stupidity. Working in the laboratories of Koch and Pasteur, he embarked on a series of long and undramatic-sounding but very important experiments. They brought him small fame, perhaps in part because of his overcautiousness. Quote, More than the devil or starvation, he hated men who rushed into publication unprepared. Unquote. At the age of 40, he fled anti-Semitic Germany for America, where he became a professor of bacteriology. There, he began work on his dearest dream, the artificial production of antitoxin. In contrast to the heroes building bridges, designing cars, and writing ads for cigars, he was looked at as little more than a cranky Jew. While they lived in large houses with servants, he dwelt in a cramped cottage with peeling paint. In 1899, he went to work at Winnemac, where he continued his war on post-hoc propter-hoc conclusions. He was regarded by his colleagues as an impractical zealot devoted to pure science, or art for art's sake, the sort of man who would, quote, rather have people die by the right theory than have them cured by the wrong, unquote. He published little, but all his papers were exquisite, easily duplicated, and airtight. A pessimist and a misanthrope, he was one of the great benefactors of humanity, whose work paved the way for all future efforts to end epidemics. He was never interviewed, never received a prize, never produced anything the public could understand. He was an authentic scientist. Though he feared his work would lead to a race of men low in natural immunity and an overcrowded world, he did not let these fears compromise his work. The future of mankind would have to look to itself. Gottlieb, we are surprised to discover, has a wife and three children. His wife is a thick and slow-moving German woman in whom he is not confidential, but on whose housekeeping he depends. His youngest daughter is an avid musician, the middle, nothing in particular, and his eldest, a son, a wild thing and a distress. In Martin, Gottlieb had discovered a rare disciple, which is why, in their chance encounter on the street after Martin abandoned him, there was such a pain in Gottlieb's eyes. In a fit of mad superstition, Gottlieb sets himself the goal of turning the Winnemac Medical School into an institution, quote, altogether scientific, ruled by exact quantitative biology and chemistry, with spectacle fitting and most of surgery ignored, unquote. Having found a physiologist from Harvard he thinks would make an excellent dean, he politely bids Silva to step down. When Silva refuses, he takes his demand to the president of the university. The next day, he is summoned to a meeting of the university council where he is charged with disloyalty, egotism, atheism, failure to collaborate, and inability to understand practical affairs, and asked to resign. 
When he refuses and says they will have to cast him out, they do. He is discharged. Broke, jobless, and with no prospects, his ancient sureness breaks into self-pity. And then, after his wife becomes ill, into self-doubt. When she begins vomiting blood, he calls on the aid of Dean Silva, who comes with excessive benignity, delighted by the fact that when something is the matter, Gottlieb doesn't run to Arrhenius or Jacques Loeb, but to him. The need of turning to Silva damages Gottlieb's opinion of his own wisdom. It was just after this episode that Gottlieb encountered Martin and Leora. So, the pain in his eyes was not just at Martin's betrayal, but at the thought that maybe Martin was right to betray him. Gottlieb is reduced to seeking a job as a teacher through an agency, and then brought lower by the agency's rejection of him, given his reputation of general incompetence. The best they can offer him is a position teaching general hygiene. Gottlieb walks away, his eyes filled with senile tears. The second of my posts was called, It's a Difference of One's Gods. Earlier in the novel, Martin says to Ira Hinckley, You think Gottlieb isn't religious, Hinckley. Why, his just being in a lab is a prayer. With the character of Gottlieb, Sinclair Lewis shows us that there can be sacredness in science and a religious sort of reverence in the quest for truth. The sense in which Gottlieb, an atheist, is religious in his devotion to science is beautifully expressed and embroidered in chapter 11. We see it in Martin's irrepressible longing for the lab, a longing that tugs at his soul despite his enjoyment of the power and glory that come from being the doctor. Quote, But on night duty, alone, he had to face the self he had been afraid to uncover, and he was homesick for the laboratory, for the thrill of uncharted discoveries, the quest below the surface and beyond the moment, the search for fundamental laws which the scientist, however blasphemously and colloquially he may describe it, exalts above temporary healing, as the religious exalts the nature and terrible glory of God above pleasant daily virtues. Unquote. The quest of the lab is a quasi-spiritual one, a quest below the surface and beyond the moment. We see it even in Silva's denigration of Gottlieb, whom he dismisses as a cynic and a destroyer. But we are meant to see Silva as misguided, and to understand the real value of Gottlieb's gods. Quote, but with him, it's a difference of one's gods. Gottlieb's gods are the cynics, the destroyers, crepe hangers, the vulgar call them, Diderot and Voltaire and Elser. Great men, wonder workers, yet men that had more fun destroying people's theories than creating their own. But my gods now, they're the men who took the discoveries of Gottlieb's gods and turned them to the use of human beings, made them come alive, unquote. Silva says Gottlieb's gods are destroyers. They are destroyers of falsehood, 
a corollary of which, though Silva doesn't see or refuses to see it, is that they are champions of truth. And it is they who made it possible to turn them to the use of human beings, if only you look below the surface and beyond the moment. We also see it in Leora's hero worship, in her unrestrained reverence of Gottlieb and all that he represents. Quote, Sandy, he's the greatest man I've ever seen. I don't know how I know, but he is. Dr. Silva is a darling, but that man was a great man. I wish, I wish we were going to see him again. There's the first man I ever laid eyes on that I'd leave you for if he wanted me. He's so, oh, he's like a sword. No, he's like a brain walking. Oh, Sandy, he looked so wretched. I wanted to cry. I'd black his shoes. Unquote. I hope you carry some of these potent phrases away with you, as I have. The concept of pure science as looking beneath the surface and beyond the moment. The misguided attempt to denigrate truth-seekers as cynics and destroyers. And the uninhibited hero-worship in the declaration, I'd black his shoes. The last of my posts was called The Plight of the Idealist. Whatever his fleeting and ever-changing impulses, Martin seems deeply drawn to the laboratory, to Max Gottlieb, and to the ideal of pure science. In chapter 12, we see, in agonizing detail, where such a path might lead. We see Gottlieb's noble devotion to the quantitative method, his rigorous and exacting approach to research, and his quiet but monumental innovations in the lab. Then, we see him scorned by his colleagues as a cynic, a snob, a pessimist, a killjoy, and, though he fled to America as a safe haven from such discrimination, a cranky Jew. We see him lonely, bored by the students who see him only as an academic hurdle, and suffering a melancholy lack of understanding friends. Despite the fact that his work makes him one of the great benefactors of humanity, we see him unappreciated, unrewarded, ignored. We see him dwell in a cramped cottage and ride on a squeaky bicycle, while the quacks and chewing gum salesmen live in mansions and, quote, take their sacred persons abroad in limousines, unquote. We see him derided by his son for being a tightwad who denies him money for fast cars and eccentric clothes while spending it on his silly researches. We see him pursue a mad ambition to reform the medical school, and then, when he is dismissed for insubordination, see him abandoned by those who had claimed to be his allies in the effort. We see him suffer the humiliation of seeking a teaching job through an agency, and then, worse, to be condescended to by the agent for his incompetence. Perhaps worst of all, we see him doubt his own principles, and question whether, after all he has suffered, the principles that have brought on his suffering are even right. And then, in the grips of his dejection, we see him cross paths with Martin, 
the one student who had given him hope. And we see him wonder if maybe Martin had been right to abandon him. Throughout this novel, Sinclair Lewis has made us witness to Martin Arrowsmith's struggles to determine who he wants to be. At no point does he make any part of that struggle easy.